Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, the CEO of the DSR Network and host of the Deep State Radio podcast. Here at DSR, we have always believed that in a world as complex, fast-moving, and full of risks as ours, we all need access to the best minds. That is why we have created the leading network for expert podcasts on the issues of the day you care about. We go in-depth on politics, the law, national security, foreign policy, intelligence, defense, climate, and new technologies with regular and special guests that are the leading voices in their fields. We also offer daily updates on global news, our DSR Daily, and on a key story of the day through our partnership with the New Republic. That is why over a million times a month, people like you choose to spend time with our hosts and guests. Membership is what supports this, and members get special benefits, including bonus content in virtually all of our podcasts. It's a big deal, and it's a good deal. Our monthly membership price is going to go up for the first time in our history on March 1st. So now is the time you can lock in our founder's rate of just $5 a month. To do so, go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. It's that easy, but don't delay. Today's rates will only be available for a few more weeks. Join us, support us. Go to the dsrnetwork.com right now. Thank you. This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. We've got the votes and screw the rest of you. And Dr. Kavita Patel. These might be some of the smaller moments, you know, with all the bombshells. Didn't catch people's eyes. Hello and welcome to Words Matter from the DSR Network. Each week, Norm Ornstein and I will talk about the issues facing our country as we head into not just another, what I would call rocky election cycle, but Norm, today, literally as we're recording, so by the time listeners listen, it'll probably be about a 24-hour lapse, but as we are recording this, we have just finished hearing what I might argue um, is a much more important Supreme Court case than Bush v. Gore, which I thought in my time, in my lifetime, was the most important election-related Supreme Court case. But I would say this definitely takes the cake. Uh, and, and Norm, tell me, I was able to listen on, and, and normally we should say for listeners, if you're surprised that people are listening to Supreme Court arguments, you should be. Normally they never allow for recording devices to be used. So you have people attending and then kind of doing the outside commentary. Uh, and this is the first time, and I believe I listened on NPR, were they the only outlet let, let in, Norm? Or how did you follow the court procedure? No, no, it, you know, it was an, uh, the court will sometimes in key cases uh, do an audio version. It was on um, uh, at least MSNBC, I suspect CNN for the entire time. And it was a long uh, yeah. oral argument. Yeah. It was well over two hours. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so everybody, was, but it is unusual. When's the last time they've had, yeah. I know they've done summaries, but not live yeah. recording, uh, live streaming. Well, no, they've done some, okay. but uh, it's rare. Uh, you know, usually an oral argument is going to last for less than an hour. Uh, this one went on, but 
you know, the first conclusion uh, that one can come to is uh, it is likely to be either nine zero or eight one uh, in favor of Trump's argument. They're not going to go so far. What's interesting in some ways is in uh, the Trump lawyers' argument, the main thing that they pounded on was that Trump is not an officer of the United States because uh, the Constitution says that the president appoints officers of the United States. And they, you know, you might have expected that this would be a major part of the argument. It was an afterthought, uh, basically. It was brought up a few times, but it, there was much more of a focus on uh, the the role that states play, um, some of the history of the uh, 14th Amendment, um, a question that several justices asked the uh, Colorado lawyers about whether this applies to state elections, but not federal elections. And, you know, part of what's interesting about this is that you have a court that normally plants its uh, flag in the ground on states' rights, that uh, this time it was, well, never mind that. And that in so many previous decisions, like Shelby County and and especially uh, some of the more recent cases like Dobbs, where they have no concern for the implications out in the country for their decisions that, you know, they talk about how they're making this ruling based on the constitution. And here it was really uh, underlying it about, you know, the chaos that could be caused in the country. And there was a lot of discussion of that. The reality Kavita is that this is going to be nine O or eight one, um, Probably nine. Did that surprise you? Uh, did Did you think that going into no, it? It did not. Okay. I think you know for for several reasons. One of them is that I think this court and Roberts are reeling from the backlash and the low regard with which the court is held, and that includes uh, you know not just on the left after Dobbs, not just more broadly because of the farce of uh, the way they've handled their ethics. But uh, on the right, where you have not just uh, Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, saying, I don't care what the Supreme Court said. Screw them. We're uh, not going to listen to their ruling that uh, the federal government uh, has the right to protect the border. And joined by 25 other governors and by uh, huge numbers of members of Congress, their reputation is at stake, and the idea that they would bar Trump from running and get the backlash from the Trumpists, uh, it just was not going to happen. But I also think that you see that same reaction from the uh, uh, justices who have been appointed by, uh, nominated by Democrats, and I think they understand that it's better in a, in a case like this not to have it break down on partisan lines. Now, what I'm hoping is the case is that whether it's implicit or explicit, the next big case, and the one that in many ways is more important right now, is the immunity case. One in which the D.C. Circuit three-judge panel took four weeks 
and what is a slam dunk, but then wrote an extraordinarily powerful opinion. It may go to the full D.C. Circuit, which I think will deal with it pretty rapidly, uh, and then go to the Supreme Court. And our hope is that the Supreme Court will just will not take this up, but just let the D.C. Circuit ruling uh, uh, prevail. And that means we could move expeditiously to the trial in D.C. on January 6th of Trump. And that means we could get a ruling and I think very likely a conviction well before the election. So, you know, if that's the trade-off, so be it. Um, let me, I want to mention one other thing which just really rankled me. Clarence Thomas did not recuse himself in this case. His wife, we know, Ginny Thomas, was neck deep in the insurrection. She wrote emails. She met with Mark Meadows, the chief of staff. She probably talked to Trump. She helped to bring people to Washington. His involvement in this case has a direct bearing on his own wife. And not only did he not recuse himself, but in what I think you could argue is an in-your-face uh, gesture, a guy who almost never asks questions during oral arguments was very active. And it was basically, screw you, not only am I going to uh, stay involved in this case, I'm going to participate in a way I don't usually. It's just uh, outrageous. So just take a little further. I think that you're right. I'm not surprised um, by the questioning. And I think just having listened to the first half of it, it was pretty clear. I kind of got through like most of the senior justices and they both sides of kind of, you know, from Democratic nominations, uh, Democratic presidential nominations and Trump. Um, I do think that you could tell that there was like, you know, very pointed questions for both sets of lawyers that were like try in, in their questioning, trying to make it very clear that they're not making like any, you know, it was really around like, should Congress make this decision? Is this the states that should make the decision? You could tell they were really trying to make the case for why this is, you know, like what what is going to be kind of the level set field, knowing, knowing, as you know, that as this case goes, so will all the other state cases, right? And that's and so I agree that I would shift to the immunity as the most important here. I will say to you that, it, so just hear me out, could, and we've talked about the justices and the circuit court and kind of the DC area, um, tell me if this Supreme Court ruling has any effect, it shouldn't, it doesn't have anything material, again, not a lawyer, but should it have, would it have just even a, an emotional kind of effect on the immunity case? Meaning that in the play, the scenario out also that sure, if you have a convicted, you know, if you have a convicted felon or convicted criminal, that person cannot run for office, but that then opens the door because I did hear arguments today about the powers of Congress. So Norm, disaster scenario. You could actually galvanize a win in the Supreme Court, because that's what it's going to be seen as, right? Either way, it was a win. If it were 9-0 the other way, there would be an outcry, like, and, and again, planning for like an, a repeat of, you know, January riots and terrorist attacks. So this is a win. Going into like that immunity uh, hearing and the immunity case, Seems very clear, seems very cut, cut and dry. 
but I would just hearing what I heard today and having my former Hill kind of Senate hat on, I heard a lot of like, you know, Congress can, Congress could choose, Congress could choose, Congress might, Congress may, this was intended for, you know, for, um, you know, Confederates from the South to come back and take over the, you know, all this language, right? Tell me what you think about that. Is that crazy? Or is that a possibility given what composition of Congress we have right now? Yeah. I, well, given that this Congress can't do much of anything, I don't think there's much of a possibility of that. But there was a lot of discussion over how states have plenary power over presidential elections, except that they can be preempted by Congress. And you had justices who had to agree to that because it's pretty clear, flat out in the language of the Constitution. Um, you know, what will be mildly interesting here is. Let's say that we do get this trial on Trump's role on January 6th, and he's convicted of inciting the assault on the Capitol with the intent of trying to overturn the results of an election. He has not been explicitly charged with insurrection. And even if he had been, it wouldn't have changed the outcome in this particular case. But one could imagine after he's convicted uh, if that happens, that some states could then say, okay, we're now in a different world and we will disqualify him from the ballot. Uh, now, the court is not likely to take that up, but we'll see a different dynamic if we do get this trial moving forward and if Trump is, before the election, convicted of explicitly trying to overturn the election and uh, encouraging uh, a riot and what by any reasonable standard, was an insurrection against the Constitution of the United States. Okay, so then let's talk about the, well, just how long will this take? I know I heard some commentary uh, this morning on MSNBC that this should be fairly soon, that we could hear something within days, uh, but it could take months. And I got very confused because I heard the same thing you did. Like, this seems... I don't want to say shut and like clear cut, like, you know, nine zero, but I know they have to write everything up, but I, what do you think Norm? And, and again, I'm like, I'm like playing out the timeline, right? Let's talk about like South Carolina and, and this, what, what's happening in parallel um, and the effect on like the immunity case. So, you know, in every instance, what Trump has been trying to do is to run out the clock, delay as much as possible. I'm sure that he and his lawyers were exultant after what was a devastating argument by this three-judge panel of the D.C. Circuit on the immunity case. You know, the most famous part of that was uh, Judge Pan saying, so if as president he called SEAL Team 6 and said, assassinate my rival, would that be okay? And Trump's lawyer said, yes. Uh, first, he would have to be impeached and convicted by uh, Congress. So you could do murders. But of course, you know, the follow up question to that, the obvious one is, well, what if he then said to SEAL Team 6, assassinate all those members of Congress who would vote to impeach and convict me? Uh, so, you know, he was not going to win on the immunity side. But we got very nervous because it took this three judge panel. Two uh, judges who had been nominated by Democrats, 
One, Karen LaCraft Henderson, who is over on the right and had been a George W. Bush appointee, but she was the senior one and could write the opinion. It was something that we expected would come within days, and it took several weeks. And there was a real concern that this would be dragged out. Now, Trump can appeal that to the full D.C. circuit. In theory, they could take a substantial amount of time. They could then issue a ruling, and uh, it would be appealed to the Supreme Court. And the court could dawdle with this one. Uh, at least in theory, they could let this drag on long enough that we would not get a trial before the election in D.C. I think the power of the opinion, the four weeks that it took, is balanced off against an extraordinarily deep and powerful opinion saying, of course, he does not have full immunity. That it's possible that the D.C. Circuit, the full uh, court, will rule very quickly and uh, and affirm that judgment. And I think it's more likely than not now that the Supreme Court will say, we'll just let that stand. Uh, the judge in this case has uh, already postponed a trial that was supposed to begin in March um, indefinitely until we got the final ruling on the immunity uh, issue. Um, but if we get it coming up, uh, in the next three or four weeks, we're likely to have a trial scheduled probably now in June and uh, concluded by before the conventions. And that would be very, very powerful. Uh, and of course, Trump will go nuts because he wants to be out there campaigning. But uh, if you know, criminal trial of this sort, he has to be there in uh, the courtroom. Uh, so We've got more twists and turns to come, but uh, right now you could argue, uh, as Trump would, that this was good news for him, but there's some uh, much tougher news ahead. All right. Well, just for um, just for the sake of it, I'm going to read. I actually had to go. I have like this little pocket constitution, so I, I used to carry like a more annotated one when I yeah. worked on the Hill because... You know, we'd often reference. Right, exactly, exactly. So I have a little pocket one. I just thought it would be worth reading the section in question um, from the 14th Amendment. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. So it's it's um, one of the other kind of intriguing aspects of this. I just wanted to kind of read that because I felt like, you know, People, there were pieces those those who really have to like you know do work that uh, does not involve listening to every minute of this recordings. It gets all jumbled. I don't know, Nora. Again, not a constitutional scholar, not a lawyer. That feels pretty clear. Like it, it, it's clear where Congress can play the role, which I know they talked about. One question I had, and I'm just like I I am a little confused because 
the, uh, the Trump's lawyers brought this up and I am confused by this. And I guess it's just the parsing of the terms, but I, I know this is what they mean. Remember when they talked about how this section that I just read doesn't actually mention elections. It's really just about holding office. So does that mean that even though, you know, whatever they did, or is that like, is that a theoretical possibility or is that actually real? I'm just curious. Sorry. I just, it's, no, I mean, I was yeah, confused that, when it came up and I, I, you know, far be it for me to admit, like, as if anyone accuses us of never thinking through things, I thought, I mean, it doesn't mention elections, <laughs> so I don't know what to make. Like, like, why shouldn't he be on the ballot? Yeah. It's not saying he's winning. I, like, what does that mean? And so I, what is, what was your take? You know, this is just throwing up every argument that you can against this. If you can't hold office, then it would be farcical to say, of course, you can run for that office, but if you're elected, you're not going to be able to take the office. Um, that doesn't make a huge amount of sense. There were a couple of other arguments here. One that we alluded to earlier, which is, is the president an officer? And we had a lot of discussion here over, is there a distinction between office and officer? Because of course, uh, it's the office of the president. Uh, and the idea that you are the in the you are the president. It is the office of the president, but you are not an officer. Uh, seem to be wasting a lot of time on something that doesn't make a huge amount of sense. There was another interesting point here that I sort of um, got a little uh, antsy about, which is Gorsuch, among others, brought up the idea that um, the president pro tem of the Senate and the Speaker of the House are officers in the Constitution, but of course, they don't hold an office in the executive branch because they're not in the executive branch. And I would argue that they're not officers, that in the Constitution, the term officer has a capital O. And I actually have made the case before that it is unconstitutional for the president pro tem or speaker of the house to be in the line of succession for the president, uh, presidency because they're not officers of the United States. But nobody pushed back uh, against that. And that's partly because it wasn't entirely relevant to uh, the issue at hand here. So, you know, you get these sort of ridiculous arguments. The other part was, well, the 14th Amendment doesn't explicitly mention the president. And what the lawyer for Colorado, who, by the way, was really, really good, uh, who it turns out looking up his background, this is a guy who graduated uh, magna cum laude from Harvard Law School and who clerked for both Elena Kagan and Neil Gorsuch at the Supreme Court. Uh, but, you know, he was... Uh, really uh, good at this. And in the argument about why the uh, 14th Amendment didn't explicitly mention the president, he went back to the arguments made when the 14th Amendment was being uh, passed through Congress, where this issue came up and the authors said, well, of course, the president's included in this. Uh, he is, after all, an officer. Uh, so, uh, you know, they raised all kinds of issues, some of them arcane, uh, some of them real, but frankly, it didn't matter. I think this decision was baked in early on. This Supreme Court was not going to say 
Donald Trump cannot run for president or they would have faced riots at the court. Yeah, absolutely. So that super helpful. I realize I even got kind of settled on a very specific term, but I thought well, when they heard that, I thought, you know, they are throwing everything up that sticks. And in doing so, it's, it's, it almost creates the obligation to address every question, right? Like, I mean, they, they went through every single possible, I will give them credit. I, uh, I will give them credit that, you know, they were creative. <laughs> I guess that's what you do. I guess that's what you do when you fire so, so many of the lawyers. Let's, let's wrap up because you mentioned, uh, you stole a little bit, Norm, in my thunder talking about um, the person arguing for the, for Colorado because, I thought that it was, you know, incredible, um, kind of his experience and, and he, what was his name? Jason Murray, right? Yeah. Jason. Yeah. And he's like 36 or 37 years old. I was just going to say, I think he's like, boy, did he hold his own. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and then arguing for Trump, the voice, if you heard for Trump was Jonathan Mitchell and he's had he's argued, you know, several times, um, or he's one of the few conservative lawyers who's actually argued in front of the Supreme Court and has done it like five times. And during his last case, because I was just looking him up, that he literally exasperated Elena King in, because um, that she sarcastically called him a genius because of his like extensive questioning. So I just, I just thought that that was um, an interesting little side note. And then, um, just the other fact about Mitchell, because you and I have talked about reproductive health, that he was the architect of kind of the t- Texas abortion law. So that kind of preceded Dobbs. So this is, um, you know, I, I, I will say like they did bring, tell me if I'm wrong, like it did feel like a bit of a David and Goliath. I was a little worried about that, um, I, you know, thinking through like, OK, this guy's done all these Supreme Court cases. He did this Texas case, you know pretty sophisticated but but i agree like i i totally agree that jason murray held his own and was incredible and uh not sure what he wants to do in his day job outside of these cases but you know he's definitely got a great future so um all right we'll kind of save for our members we want to thank our listeners and we'll shift over into something very related norm to what we're talking about which is the dysfunction in congress Uh, But in the meantime, we just want to thank everyone who's listening. Help us by reviewing, rating, and sharing this podcast. We know that if you like an episode and let a friend know about it, they are much more likely to listen to it. And if you haven't, uh, become a member of the DSR Network and have an incredible amount of access to great conversations and great minds. And wanted to thank Words Matters, a production of the DSR Network. Wanted to thank our producer, Riley Fessler, our executive producer, Chris Cottonmore, and our next episode of Words Matter will be in your feeds around February 15th. <laughs>